Well, it's amazing how much uh, talent is around here, like the folks behind me. And, but not only that, um, you know, these are, these are people who are serving us and, um, and, 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 and have really the spiritual gift of exhortation in a lot of ways to, to lead us, to serve us, to come together and to offer that fragrance that incense that arises when people come together to uh, celebrate him and to lift up his name. Would you all join me in thanking them for their service this morning? They disappeared while I was talking. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, this past week. And, uh, and, and maybe some of you all feel like, uh, like the note that I saw this past week that said, um, now that all the political ads are over, can we get back to figuring out who burned down that poor woman's she shed? <laughs> all right, that really hinged on maybe y'all seeing that commercial. Maybe you feel kind of weary. Maybe you're tired of hearing about politics. We're not going to talk particularly about partisan politics this morning, but, but more about how do we respond uh, in the midst of, of, of a, a time when it just seems like people are so, so hostile to each other. And uh, not just a sense of division, as we've talked about, but just a, a general sense of dis-ease, a general sense that, 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 that even to talk about politics or religion, as my grandfather would say, you know, you want to... You wanna, uh, ruin a, a dinner party, bring up politics or religion. Because people, people are so emotionally invested in their opinions that, uh, that, that it, it does trigger, I know that's a funny word these days, but it does trigger an emotional reaction. And so how do we, in an environment that is so politicized, when almost anything can be politicized and is, how do we not only respond well, but but respond in a very encouraging and powerful way ourselves, to be encouraged ourselves. And the answer has to do with the sovereignty of God. Let's take a look at Romans chapter 13, starting with verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. And you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this... You are also to pay taxes, for the authorities are the ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, 
Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Let's pray together. Holy God, how we thank you that you've given us a government, and such as it is. You've given us a time and a place in which to reinforce order. And so God, bless this word, not just to our minds to understand it, but to our hearts to trust it and our hands to live it. In Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, I, I mentioned that uh, the word politics is broken down into two different segments. Poly, which comes from the Latin, which means many, and ticks, which means blood-sucking creatures. And, you, and some of you all uh, told me that you thought that was kind of funny. But at the same time, uh, we want to inspire our best and brightest to go into politics, do we not? They make they make decisions. Politicians make decisions. We have politicians here among us, uh, locally. We have people who are in touch regularly with our representatives, that, uh, uh, two of whom I've gotten to meet this past year, who are, seem to be really fine, fine men who are serving us. We want servant leaders, and we as a populace, we as a church, need to engage in public life in a way that does bear out uh, order and reinforce order and respect. At the same time, uh, we, we also know that, um, that power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's a guy named Lord Acton who said that many years ago. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so as you see the division, as you see the abuse of power, as you see rhetoric that, uh, that, that tells half-truths and twists things. How do we, how do we as a church, how do we as, an in, as individuals, how do we uh, engage in public life and engage in the issues of the day in a way that, uh, that doesn't discourage? How do we stay in it, right? How do we get into it and interact with people about these issues without getting dragged down? Is it possible? Yes. It is, when we understand, and when we trust, and when we live out of this place of God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. And so we're going we're gonna to look at it in terms of the head, the heart, and the hands today. Now first, the head. We need to understand that God is sovereign even when we make things a mess. We need to understand the sovereignty of God and stop measuring it in terms of the moment we need to understand, we need to understand with our heads, we need to wrap our minds around what it means to have a God who is in control, a God who rules, a God who brings to his fashioned ends, or the, you know, the way that, uh, that, that the Greek talks about it is the telos, right? God is authoritative over his creation, even when moment to moment we're making messes. Let me give you an example of how we can, we can understand the sovereignty of God amidst the mess. You have to ask yourself. This is an important question. I ask myself this every now and then. Here's the question. 
Why aren't things much worse? The answer is common grace. Common grace is is something we need to understand in order to understand the sovereignty of God. Why aren't things much worse? The answer is common grace. And common grace is one example of God's sovereignty at work amidst the messes that we make. Why aren't things much worse? Think about this past week, the sorrow of the families at Thousand Oaks, in Thousand Oaks, California. Another one, right? Another one. Now imagine tomorrow the news story. Small town in Iowa does not have a shooting, right? Small town in Iowa goes about their regular business and uh, is caring for each other and, uh, and the mail gets delivered on time, right? There are thousands and thousands of communities across this nation and around the world with an incredible amount of order and stability, despite the fact that you can see in a Thousand Oaks, California, what we're capable of doing to one another. And every now and then to see bubbling up and recognizing that there is a a condition that is fiercely antagonistic to the good and to things that are beautiful and to things that are orderly. Every now and then you can see and you'll have experiences where it's very disturbing to see how, uh, how dark the human heart can be. I read a, a book called The Heart of Darkness. Maybe you've seen uh, the, the, the movie that was based on it, Apocalypse Now. And at, at the end of it, this, this guy, uh, Kurtz, went, who went native, so to speak, he, he had become a cannibal. And he says, as he's reflecting on how far into the depths of human depravity he has fallen, he says, the horror, the horror. We have to understand that the line between, human, uh, between uh, good and evil runs through the human heart. It's not them. It's not just them, right? Whoever them is, right? So the encouraging part of this, though, is why aren't things worse? The answer is common grace. There is at work out there a grace that is not saving grace. You see the difference? Saving grace says, I'm repenting of self-centeredness. I'm repenting of this me-ism. I'm repenting of me first. I'm repenting of the me monster, right? That centers everything around me and puts me first. You got to see the difference. Here's an example. You look out there and you see people doing compassionate things, right? People doing powerfully compassionate things. For the Christian, and this isn't to boost ourselves up, it's to say how important saving grace is. For the Christian, God has has destroyed the power of the condition of that heart of darkness. For the Christian, God has destroyed the power of it. Now, it doesn't mean we're not still influenced by our own heart's darkness. We are still influenced by our own heart's darkness. But God has destroyed the power of it. And we can yield to that power again, but it doesn't have to dominate you, right? When you've given your life to Christ, you've said, Lord, don't just help me with my behaviors, help me with the condition of my heart. That's the difference. You see, that's saving grace. Now, what is common grace? Common grace is where God continues 
to press into humanity a, a basic sense of conscience. You know, Romans 1 talks about this, that, that there is a, a generally revealed or a general revelation of what is good and what is evil. We know that it exists, even if we don't always agree where the line is between good and evil, that people still carry with them this, this echo of, of first creation that God spoke, this image, even though, though it's a broken image, people still cr- carry with them the, the image of God that, that seeks order, that seeks beauty, and so common grace is at work. And so, so even though uh, people may do compassionate things, you, you can peel back the layers and you might find that what they're really concerned about is not the character of the human condition, but they're concerned about their reputation. And so what they're doing is more for PR, right? And yet there's something helpful about common grace. It does bring order. It does tend to, to create an environment where, where people can thrive. So common grace is, despite the messes that we make, Common grace is still at work, and this is what Paul is saying in verses 1 and 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. I know you're wrestling with the idea that that, that sometimes uh, uh, corrupt people are in power, and and that seems to equate their power with God's sovereignty. And, 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 And now you're talking about a corruption being attributed to the authority of God. We'll get there in just a minute. But first and foremost, we have to accept that behind, behind the order and the function of the king or of the legislature, of the president, behind all of that is a God who continues to speak order through common grace into his creation to give us a shot at redemption, at human flourishing, and eventually even to contribute to the city of God, to the kingdom of God. You see what is at work? We first have to embrace with our heads a respect for the function and the order that comes, even when we don't like who's in charge or how they're conducting themselves. That's the first thing. You could be encouraged. You should be encouraged, despite the horror of of the human heart, despite the things that we can do, and you can see it in a thousand oaks, California, and the next one, and the next one. You and I can be encouraged to engage in public life recognizing, yes, that that our heart is dark, but that God is sovereign. And through common grace, he continues to bring stability. And we, we can bring a special saving message into that context. That's one of our opportunities. So understand it with your head, but, but trust it with your heart. Not only do we have to understand the sovereignty of God to be encouraged, we have to trust the sovereignty of God even when the king is corrupt. Now, I'm not talking about uh, you know, the, the president right now. I'm talking about any power or authority, whether it's at your school, at your job. You could be thinking about your, the, the family in which you grew up. You, you, may, you may be experiencing a brokenness in the place where you work or it may be in your local government But wherever there is power and authority, right, we have to trust that even when things are broken and broken people are in charge, God is sovereign. That's our opportunity to trust. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, isn't a little rebellion every now and then, like Jefferson said, a good thing? We'll get there. We'll get there. But first, take this step with me. 
that when the government is broken, when broken people are in charge, there is an opportunity to trust. We have to do first things. See, here's what Paul's saying. He's saying that a sovereign God doesn't need a perfect government for his people to live out of a posture of trust. In fact, there are opportunities when things are a mess, when people in charge are corrupt for human human beings like us who trust in God to write large that trust that we have for him. You see what I'm saying? Here, let, let, me, let me give you an example. In China today, there's 67 million Christians. 67 million Christians. <laughs> let me say that again. In China today, there are almost 70 million Christians under a corrupt government, a government that does not want Christianity to flourish. Why are there almost 70 million Christians. In fact, if, if Christianity continues to grow at its current rate, what they're saying is that by 2030, uh, China will be the most Christian nation on earth. <laughs> That's amazing, incredible. Why is that happening? The Chinese house church has flourished amidst deep persecution. I had a friend uh, who was working over in China with Campus Crusade for Christ, who was teaching English as a second language uh, for a number of years. And, and they had to be very careful about what they said out, out in public. The church has always flourished amidst persecution. Didn't somebody say, blessed are those who are persecuted? Why did he say such a strange thing in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. Brother Yoon, who is one of the leaders, was, was one of the leaders in the Chinese house church movement, was asked about uh, five years ago, what is, your, what is your great fear as the, the leadership baton is being passed from one generation to the next? What's your great fear about or concern for, for this next generation of leaders in the Chinese house church movement? You know what he said? His... His answer was very surprising to me until I began to recognize what he meant. He said, my concern for them is their growing affluence. Affluence. When, when, when a movement is afoot, and the movement is, we trust a sovereign God despite the brokenness of the king. We trust a sovereign God. When that's the movement, how quickly we begin to shift into to thinking that when we gain a little bit of power, we need that power in order for the church and the message and the gospel to flourish. How quickly we begin to, to fight the wrong battles as though what we needed to do was leverage the power of the church in order to garner the power of the state we mess things up when we do that. Conservative or liberal alike, we mess up the message when we think that we are more compelling as a church when we have the power of the state. Quite the opposite. On the contrary, 
power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so we have to decide. A lot of times it's really a simple decision. Do you want to influence or do you want to be powerful? Seldom have people been able to do both. And whenever someone has power and they continue to be influential, you know their name. You know examples of people like this because they're so rare. Why are they so rare? They prove the point and the principle that we need to first and foremost demonstrate our trust in a sovereign God even when the state is broken. That's why Paul is saying, pay your taxes, bring respect to those who, to whom uh, you should respect, verses 5 through 7. Uh, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. See, we need to contribute to the stability, the basic stability of our milieu, of our day and age, even when we're not in agreement with the people that are in charge. You know, Beth and I have been in a position where... Um, We've, we've considered withholding our giving because we were so upset with the power of, of, of somebody over a certain organization. But we believed in the cause, and we also believed that God uh, wanted us to, to be stewards of and and so we continued to lean into that. You see, that's just another example of how we need to persevere in trust and embrace those seasons where we can deepen our trust even when things are broken. So we understand with our heads that God is sovereign. We see that through common grace, he is at work behind even the messes that we make. We understand that, that, that we need to, to let that shift from our head to our heart. We need to be able to trust in the sovereignty of God even when things are, are broken in terms of who's in charge and who's powerful. And even how the church has flourished and the movement has multiplied under heavy persecution. Tertullian, one of the first, uh, one of the first scholars of the, uh, uh, of, the, of the church, he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seedbed of the church. You see, when people see that, what, we're not just playing at this. When they see that we don't need or confuse power with influence, when people see that we trust in the sovereignty of God, even when things don't go our way, they begin to take seriously the message that is our lives, our changed lives. But finally this. You say, you know, I'm with you. I understand, Tim. I understand how, what you're talking about, about common grace, that there's a saving grace, that there's a common grace, that there's a trust that we need even when things are broken. But shouldn't we be at work to make things better? I mean, was Jefferson right when after they dumped tea into the tea part, into the Boston Harbor, Harbor? Was Jefferson right that every now and then a little rebellion is a good thing? Uh, yes, he was right. He was right. The first and foremost, we need to understand common grace. Second, we need to we need to deepen our trust. But but we also need to take action. So head heart and hands. We need to take action, but, but within, within that understanding of the sovereignty of God, let our actions align 
with the sovereignty of God. Let, let our actions work on the systems around us to bring greater sense of justice so that God is glorified in and through our time when we're standing watch. Let our actions help align the structure and the power with God's purposes and power. You say, well, when you start talking about systems, Tim, that's bigger. I mean, I'm just one person. What can I do? You know, I'm like sticking my finger into the the dike. You know, the the, the Dutch boy, he tried to stick his finger into the leaking dike and he runs out of fingers, right? And you feel like you're just one person and you, you, you can't do anything. What's one person? What can one person do? I don't know if you've seen this uh, controversial figure. He's controversial not because of what he said, but what other people think he said. All right, you've seen this over and again. There are lots of people who are controversial, not because of what they said, but because of what other people think they said, right? And then you actually never go and read what they actually said. Now, I've read Jordan Peterson's book, 12 Rules. I've read it twice. And what they're saying about what he wrote is not what he wrote. (laughs) It's just incredible to me and so frustrating, but... But, uh, but Jordan Peterson has a chapter in his book, 12 Rules for Life, and uh, one of the things he says is, look, if you're going to complain about how the systems are broken, why don't you go see if you can clean up your room first, and then come back to us, all right? Go clean up your room, right? So he's, he's a professor up in uh, Canada, and he's talking to, you know, 19 to 22-year-olds every day, and they're all, they've got all the answers, Right? Right? Because they have, uh, because they just simply do. They've thought for five minutes and they have all the answers. Uh, they read an article that somebody posted and they've got it. They read Scott. You know, I've told you about Scott. Thank you, Scott. They read Scott's article and they're like, yeah, that's right. Doggone it. I can't believe you terrible people that are in charge and I've got the answers, right? And he said, well, uh, l- let me ask you, how's your dorm, what's your dorm room look like? Would you, would you want me to come and, and could you come and, and, uh, and invite me into your room and, uh, would you be proud to have me over? How's that look like? Are you able to kind of maintain your own space? Can you do that? Until you can clean up your room and, and have that consistent, make your bed and, and, and have things in order there, you know, don't think that you've got all the answers to what's going to fix the bigger picture here. You know, it, that's speaking into the order, the order that, Young people, we want to hear from you. Young people, you've got passion. Young people, you've got new ideas. We need that. But there also needs to be a sense that when you're, when you're older, when you live another 20 years, you're probably going to know more than you did now, and you probably want to have some credit for that, right? Won't you? Yes. Well, that may be the people who are ahead of you. And that there should be a certain ordering or hierarchy in terms of people's experience. And so, so what he's saying here. Is, is that one person can make a difference, but you have to start with your own room. What's the metaphor there? Well, what do we have in, over, what are we standing in charge over, over? We are in charge of the way our relationships function here. We're in charge of, of the way that First Presbyterian Church functions. Not just our reputation, but, but the motive of the things that we do out in the public square. Let's get that right. We're doing a great job with that. And so, but, but, but recognize, see, you have power to change the world even around your dinner table. I remember uh, one time we had this, this little girl over who was uh, a friend of our daughter. Uh, this is many years ago in Signal, Signal Mountain where we lived in. 
And uh, she made fun of uh, our dinner table order. You know, like, you know, she said, well, we don't sit down and have dinner every night. I mean, what is this? This is kind of silly. And she was, she was mocking. She was invited to dinner, and yet she was mocking our family for, for sitting down to dinner together. She thought that was just... But what was she was experiencing was she was uncomfortable. She, she liked what she was seeing. She wanted what she was seeing. She wanted to be a part of it. She felt embarrassed that, that here is our people who are, who, who are regular, in a regular pattern of relating to each other every night, and, and her family wasn't that way. And so what did she have to do? She had to put it down. She had to mock it because she felt less than. She felt bad about herself. And then, and then uh, she began to come over more and more, and, and we, we began to recognize that she wanted to be around our family. Why? Not because we had it all together, not because we were perfect, not because we had all the answers out there to every question, but because in the place where we have some influence, we, we bring some order. We take action, first and foremost. Mother Teresa put it this way. She said, not everyone can do great things, but everyone can do small things with great love. Not everyone can do great things, but everyone can do small things with great love. Let's start there. Let's start there. That's why I added to this little, what's called a pericope, this little passage that I read. I added the next verse of the next passage. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. You can be encouraged to engage in the messes of the day. You can be encouraged when you understand that God is sovereign. He's sovereign in common grace. He deepens our trust in his sovereignty even when there is corruption at the state level. He is at work. He is at work in your actions even the smallest ones done in great love. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you're purposeful, that your purpose prevails even when the moment does not bear out the evidence of it, even when we're at our wit's end over the half-truths and over the great bickering. Lord, you are sovereign. Help us to trust that more and live it out, bear it out in our families, in our actions, in every place where we live and move and have our being. In Jesus' name, amen.